Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the big show, the money, the big draw, the legend, the man, the myth, Michael Walker. How are you doing? Oh, sorry. I was looking behind me. You're talking to me. Oh, Absolutely. Hey, Mark. How's it going? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very good. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. Walker has some salutary notes for all of you. I was saying, if you're new to the show and, and you just heard about us, welcome to a, a fantastic little romp through our board game hobby. <laughs> We're going to talk about how all the games are all fantastic and you need to buy them all. <laughs> yes, we are contributing towards the re-energizing of the economy. That is our role in these things. Criticism is definitely less important than commerce. So to that note, we are going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game, which is going to be Versailles 1919. So with that in mind, let us talk about the games that we played last week. Walker. I'm saying that's because we're, you know, we're now the new GMT hype machine, apparently. You know, the showcase of all that is GMT. So this uh. week I played a game online still, Mark. I guess I'm, I'm also the spokesperson for Board Game Arena because I continually go on and on about them. But anyway, I have nothing to do with them. Nippon, Mark. I played Nippon once a long time ago and is another game. It's not new on Board Game Arena. They've had it there for quite a while, but... I remember loving it and decided to get back into it. It's a fantastic game where they have a very interesting worker placement ne mechanism where there's this giant pool of workers that everyone's choosing from. And then when everybody's done, it's sort of like you go to the sort of like the union hall and he like looks through his papers. Well, let's see who you've used today. I see. I see. You've used some blue workers. Very nice. You've used some green workers and some yellow workers. Very. And then depending on all the different colors you've used, you're going to, you know, pay more or less. So you're you're looking through your actions and you're trying to pick uh, the same color of workers all the time because then, you know, when you get your income every turn, you'll get more. And it's got we're going to we're sort of going to I'm going to touch on this 
with Versailles, it's got that mechanism where you have to decide where to uh, because you, when you take a worker, you're filling the slots at the top, and then the more you fill, the bigger of a bonus you're going to get. So it's got that same sort of, when am I going to flip over? Because you can do it at any time. You can only choose two workers and then flip. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to waste a turn and, and get income and, and clear your worker board. So, and sometimes that mechanism works great. I think it works great in the pawn, and it has all sorts of other stuff. I'm not going to go through everything because it has a lot going on. But it does have something that, I found interesting, like in these, in these newer games, there's two things in these, in these newer sort of Euro games, one, they sort of drive you in a direction, right? And it's, I find in the pawn, it doesn't really do that. There's all of these things available to you and you just sort of get totally get to pick where you want to go. And the other thing it does is that I know it's a little more relevant in board game arena because they set everything up for you, but it's just like, boom, it's your turn go. There's none of this. Here's your starting tiles. Where are you going to start? You know, here's your special character. You know, here's the board. You need to analyze it because if you don't, you're done. It's, you know, because it's, this, it's pretty well the same every time type of thing. You know, things change a little bit, but you know, you don't really need to, you know, study the board. So it's, it's not, it's a nice change and I'm glad I went back to it. I would definitely agree with you that recent Euro designs, especially when they're middleweight or heavier, tend to be rather Baroque in terms of here are your starting tiles, here's your special power, here's your personal player board with its own level of asymmetry. And sometimes that's nice and sometimes it's a little bit overblown. I don't know what you mean in terms of more modern Euro games pushing you in a certain direction. I would ask, first of all, what is it exactly do you mean? And secondly, what's your kind of dividing line roughly in terms of time here, in terms of more recent Euro games? No, I, I just mean like, because based on what starting tiles you get or what victory point conditions are out there, it sort of like will gauge how you're going to play. Like I'm going to lean more heavily into this part of the game. Or I see. Because I have this special ability, oh, I guess I'm going to be this type that's going to travel more because I have the travel special ability, right? Where in Nippon, it's just, it's always open all the time. I see. Well, that's one of the reasons why I continually turn to the output of Reiner Knizia, because his design sensibilities, for good or ill, and I think it's largely for good, haven't really changed in the decades that he's been working. People have been talking about Whale Riders, for example, and how it feels like any sort of perennial Knizia game where you have two actions a turn, but you want to do three, and it's all about very simple set collection and, and economy generation, as opposed to, as you would say, some sort of incredibly Baroque floating market combined with asymmetric player powers, etc., etc., going up tracks on tracks on tracks. Exactly. So anyway, Nippon is by What's Your Game? And they, I haven't played very much from them lately. I don't know. I, I should look into them and see what they're doing lately because they were, in the past, they've put out fantastic games. And that was Nippon by Nuro Bizarro Sentiro and Paulo Soledad. Talking about Reichbusters Project Vril got me thinking about some of the, not that, not that Reichbusters was bad. It's just that there were a couple of elements that I thought didn't cohere very well and had a lot of Kickstarter problems. It made me yearn for some of the more simple co-op crawly type things that I really enjoy. One of them is Space Cadets Away Missions. And so I pulled it out for some solo gaming. And Space Cadets Away Missions has done a number of things really, really well that have been replicated in lots of other crawly type things, namely relatively small movement ranges, relatively small ranged combat ranges and things like that, with some cute stuff that is unique to the genre, things about manipulating doors and manipulating the movement of aliens through closed hatches and such, all in a very sort of 1950s sci aesthetic and some things that are utterly genius that have only been replicated once that i know of and the dice system in space cadets away mission is marvelous 
Anytime you do any, t- any kind of test at all, you roll a certain number of d10s. One, twos, and threes are successes. And after the first success is obtained, you then get to spend the extras, which are called overkills, on a menu of extra actions. Some of which key off of the thing you're trying to do. Some of them key off of your character special ability. Some of them key off of the, the item you're using. Some of them key off of the target you're targeting. And this may sound like a lot, but it isn't. It's just, well, I'm shooting a gun at this alien. I can spend over, overkill successes on the unique features of my gun or the unique features of this alien. And it's it's really, really nice. And it gives you lovely little options, elements of borderline press your luck, trying an action that you know is only going to get you where you want to go if you get more than one success, which almost always ends in failure. But, you know, this has been replicated in the excellent miniatures rule set Horizon War Zero Dark. And actually, when I first heard about Horizon War Zero Dark, I said to the designer, this sounds an awful lot like Space Cadets. And his response was, absolutely, except I wanted to use that system whereby that feature came up almost all the time rather than somewhat rarely, which I think was an excellent decision, which is not to say that Space Cadets feels stodgy or anything like that. It's still a brilliant element. It just doesn't come up all the time. And Space Cadets is a little bit cumbersome in setup, a little bit, but it's not a component sprawl type of thing. And it plays very quickly and it scales very well from one all the way up to six players. It's a really, really excellent game. It's scenario-driven and the scenarios are really cool. It's a shame that it was never expanded. It's one of those games where you could have lots of expansions, more characters, more aliens, more scenarios and such. There was a book of extra scenarios, which was originally part of a Kickstarter. This was one of Stronghold's early Kickstarter experiments. It was published in 2015. But you can get the book of extra scenarios, you can get the Kickstarter cards uh, through their web store. At least you could at one point. They might be out of stock. That's where I got them. And so there's a lot of variety, and it really sells the setting well. I'm not a huge fan of 1950s, 60s retro sci-fi, but it does a very, very good job of selling it. And I just really enjoy its take on the sort of cooperative dungeon crawl. And it's clean, it's neat, and very loaded with tough choices. And you always feel like you're under the gun, but never to the extent that you can't have a little bit of leeway. And the pressures are all really well put. It's got some resource management in there as well. I'm a huge fan of Space Cadets Away Missions. I think I think it's part of the very, very top tier of co-op crawly type of thing, right up there with other games like Hellboy. I highly recommend tracking down a copy if you haven't tried it yet, and that is Space Cadets Away Missions. This was put out by Dan Raspler and Al Rose. Just as a note, this has absolutely nothing to do, not even the same setting, really, as the other Space Cadets games. It doesn't have the same art style. It doesn't have the same overall mechanicals. No designers in common. I think this was just a sort of branding decision where they were just going to try to shoehorn it in. Yeah, well, cost. people know the name, right? So right. even if they picked up you know, one extra customer, then you know it worked. Mark, are you ready to get your mind blown? I've got this game. Do you now? I do. And it, it takes two mechanisms that you wouldn't think work together, but they do. And Is I this know a game that I've never heard of? You've never heard of it. Okay. I know you hate roll and write, but what do you think about flick and write? I've never heard of a flick and write game in my life, Walker. We love flicking discs, and in this one you flick discs, and then you cross stuff off on a paper. It is fantastic. It is a game called Sonora. Sonora, like... Snora, like like snore. I don't know. Really, I don't know what you're talking about. Is that like some sort of snoring yeah, a, sleeping reference? That's, that was a really bad joke. I te- it's, it, it's awful. Yeah, it is. I can't believe you went there. This is by Rob Newton and Pandasaurus Games, and of course you know it. But anyway, <laughs> we play it multiple times now, and I think it's wearing a little thin. Not for me. I still love it. It's still a great game. It's flicking, but it's just it's the it's the beginning of every round, right? Because you're everyone flicks five discs, and when you're playing with four people on this small area, the first three or four discs you're flicking are going to end up 
nowhere where you want them to. They're either going to get knocked off. There could be a little bit of, you know, making sure you get knocked off or stuff like that, or, you know, holding a smaller objective and hopefully no one cares, but more likely there's going to be a ricochet somewhere and you're going to get knocked off anyway. And it really leads down to your very last shot that seems the most important. Not that it's a huge part of the game. It just seems that, that I wish, I wish there was a little more skill orientated in the game. I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit because while I agree with you that the shots escalate in significance, and that's one of the reasons why going last is always advantageous, especially if you're able to make your shot land, you have fewer opportunities for people to mess with you. And thus, I prefer the arrangements whereby there is an equal division of rounds and player count. So, for example, in a three-player game, I probably want to play six rounds so everyone gets to be first and last twice. But... Essentially, to break things down and oversimplify them, there's two possible places where your disc can end up. There are the four zones, and then there are the bonus areas. And the bonus areas correspond to the four zones, and they double. Yes, if you end up with a bonus area, people are going to try to dislodge you from those bonus areas because they're very, very valuable. But if instead you try to focus, especially in those early shots, because again, you know that they're not going to last, on trying to situate them in the zone where you want them to end up, in a location that is less likely to get dislodged by accident then it is extremely unlikely that anyone's going to specifically go after them, and then you can leverage it to your your advantage. And this is because one of the things that Sonora preserves is the only gamey type element in other roll and rights, which is these scoring conditions are kind of mini puzzles in themselves. And the better roll and rights have the different mini puzzles be very, very different texturally. I do appreciate the this, this simplicity of something like Quicks. I actually think that, that that's pretty clever is kind of in the awkward middle spot where it's all different, but at the end of the day, they don't feel like you're exercising different tasks or doing different things. It's just a different way to manipulate numbers. Now the numbers aren't a grid. Now the numbers aren't, have to be ascending, whatever. It's, it's okay. It's, it's better than nothing. But in Sonora, you have one scoring challenge which is about orienting Tetris pieces so as to cross off different kinds of cacti. You have another challenge, which is about going along a path where you care about the specific number where you're going to land and mathing it out that way. And you have another challenge, which is about g- connecting these nodes, etc., etc. So they feel qualitatively different to me. And you are rewarded for specializing. You're rewarded for getting the values that you want. So, for example, going back to my favorite track so far, which is the OWL track, which is about getting specific numbers, you want a lot of OWL results. Because if you just get a middling result in all four quadrants, your score is not going to be very good. Yeah, I really love how they did that, where where some results you want a super large high number, or you want, like you said, a whole bunch of little numbers that you can manipulate around. Exactly. And also the timing matters, right? If you get, uh, when you're doing OWLs, you want big numbers to begin with, and then you want lots of little numbers. As opposed to Lizard, where it doesn't matter, in, in Fox, where it's situationally dependent, Bunny, it, it, it really depends as well. Anyway, all all of this is to say that if I am playing, if, I, if I'm trying to play as intelligently as I can, which is something that I feel I can do in Sonora, which I can't really do as much in other roll and write games that I've played, I can say, okay, this one disc, this piddly one disc that no one's going to pay attention to, if I get it right to the back of the owl zone, it's not going to go anywhere and it's going to last the round. And that's my dexterity challenge to try to see if I do. If it ends up somewhere near the middle, it's going to get jostled and it's not going to end up where I want it to be. So I agree with you that by and large, going for the bonuses... 
the your five value disc, they're going to get shuffled around like crazy, and their turn order is very, very consequential, and I agree with you that that's a flaw of the game. But the more I play, the more I start to realize, oh, maybe the key margin between victory and defeat is how well I situate those ones and twos at the beginning of the round, how well I'm able to decide the comparatively more dull, but perhaps ultimately consequential decision of which four quadrant do I want these things to end up with. I was not expecting to like Sonora as much as I do. I adore Sonora. I think it's really fun. You have the challenge of flicking as well as all that cool stuff about manipulating scoring. To my mind, it completely obsoletes roll and write games 100% if you have any affinity or capability towards flicking games. I just hope the more I play, the more I can actually discern the colors apart and remember what zone is what. I'm hoping that that will one day click in my brain. I agree with you. That is a bit of a, of a problem. <laughs> so that is Sonora by Rob Newton, Pandasaurus Games. Another game we got to play together was Godzilla Tokyo Clash. And I feel that it is a a great mistake that there are not about five exclamation points in the actual title of the game. I think it should probably be Godzilla, double exclamation point, Tokyo, single exclamation point, Clash, triple exclamation point. And Clash needs to be have that, like, lightning letter font. You know, All caps, definitely. Exactly, probably yeah. underlined in bold. So this is another design by Prospero Hall. Prospero Hall being the design collective that has put out some surprisingly interested li- licensed games. I'm still a big fan of their Top Gun game. It is vastly more entertaining than it has any right to be, even the dumb volleyball. But I was... I I have to say that Godzilla Tokyo Clash is almost but not quite there. There being a satisfying, reasonably dumb multiplayer free-for-all. I've been looking for multiplayer free-for-alls. I want a multiplayer free-for-all that really fires on all cylinders. Because in so many of these games... Probably the first major review that we did where I I expressed my disappointment about this was GKR Giant Killer Robots, where it just leans into the standard multiplayer problems. I attack Walker as hard as I can, and then the third and fourth players laugh because I've exhausted resources, Walker's exhausted resources, and they don't have to do anything. Godzilla Tokyo Clash gets gets... most of the way there because at most what's going to happen is Walker might burn a defense card because defense cards, eh, they're not particularly prominent. A lot of times you're just not going to be defending. And when I punch Walker real hard in the face, Walker has not lost any of, of his offensive capability. And what I do is I pocket points. Nobody gets eliminated. It's just about who can whack who the hardest uh, and where. And there is some incentive to whack some players as opposed to others. There's this King of the Monsters token, which is worth extra card draw, which is lovely because cards are the one of the key resources. And extra points at the end of the game. And extra points at the end of the game. And so you're incentivized to go after them. And the movement is reasonably fluid, but it doesn't feel an awful lot like giant monsters running at each other, I have to say. No, at the end, it just turns out to be like a little bit of who re- who manages the resources better. Because yes. you, you have an energy level and you need this high energy to put out all these cards. So if you're able to keep your energy high and keep your output you know, constantly going, because like you said, it doesn't knock anyone out. You just have to sort of just keep attacking and try to attack the most. Then you're going to get the most trophies and thereby the highest score. And on the face of it, getting energy is marvelous. One of the key ways to get energy is to pick up a train and throw it straight into somebody's face or pick up a train and throw it into a, a building, destroying them both. And in the face of it, that's awesome. In practice, though, as the game goes on, you get fewer and fewer of these uh, opportunities, the vehicles or the buildings or what have you start to dwindle down and sometimes they come back but it's it's not really a big deal and you don't feel like a giant stompy monster when there are major buildings on the map you're not allowed to coexist with them all four giant monsters 
can coexist in the same hex on the map. That's fine. There's room for all of them. Oh, but there's a radar dish in that hex. No, Godzilla, you can't go there. You can move through there, but you can't end there. And I'm like, look, I'm crushing buildings when I walk. Like, honestly. Excuse me. I'm Godzilla. Yeah. I get to go where I want. Precisely. That is, honestly, that's my major thematic problem with the game. We are giant monsters, and we don't destroy anything as we walk. I'm sorry, that doesn't make me feel like a giant stompy death uh, death thing. It makes me feel, as you say, like someone who's involved in trying to optimize my tactical and resource possibilities, which isn't really what I wanted. So it's got a bit of the multiplayer conflict problem. It's a little bit too managerial in its approach, and I don't get to destroy enough things. I'm not constantly destroying things. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. There's been so many of these ke- kaiju games and they've all just come short of you know giving you that feeling of what you want when you're when you're playing Godzilla, right? I have not played Monster Apocalypse Second Edition, but Monster Apocalypse First Edition. I, well, that's what that was going to be ca- my caveat was the one game that you know was fun and and captured that was Monster Apocalypse. Monster yeah, Apocalypse. I walked through your units. Your units are all dead because I crushed them. And now I'm going to suplex you through seventeen buildings and revel in the destruction that that causes. Now, Monster Apocalypse had its problems. It was a blind buy, randomized, collectible format, and it was incredibly overburdened with keywords that were only represented graphically, and so you were constantly referencing what units did. But it at least captured that spirit of spirit of wanton destruction, and that was my serious problem with it. So, mechanically, Godzilla Tokyo Clash is okay-ish, and thematically, I felt it was a bit frustrating, so I'd have to say that all told, this is probably my least favorite Prospero Hall game that I've ever played, and just not quite there. I was I was disappointed. So my last two games are Board Game Arena, that I played on Board Game Arena. One is called Flaming Pyramids. Seems to be mostly played on Board Game Arena. I, I, there's none in the marketplace. It looked as though it actually went to retail. I couldn't find where to buy it, but it's a sort of like a, a, a card game where you're building a pyramid. And there's all these different colors, and when you're building a base, you can put out whatever color you want. But when you're, but if you can, you must put a card on top of two other cards if that's available. And you either have to match the color or match the number. And if you don't, then the pyramid starts to crumble, and you know you sometimes cause this chain effect, which could bring down the whole pyramid. And I would, I would shudder to do this in real life and not have <laughs> and not have the computer do it automatically for you like figure out where all these cards how they're going to trickle down and do all the thing because not only do they have to match either color or number but if your number is higher than the two numbers that are going on top of then you exceed the weight and it also causes a collapse and then there's these <laughs> bombs and and fires and but anyway what it broke down to was this you know, were you lucky enough to have a card that would go on or are you going to you know cause a destruction and you're just trying to get rid of all your tiles and if you cause destruction then you're picking up all the cards that you destroyed so it's just try to get rid of your cards first so it's just one of these games where you're like you'd play in high school trying to get rid of your high cards first or you know you know, just hand, hand manipulation, right? So you're trying to get rid of all your high cards. And, and I know how much you love hand management. And and making sure you had, you know, a variety of colors. So when, you know, it came up, you'd have the right card to play. Anyway, that was Flaming Pyramids. Not sure if I'll play it very often, but it, it, would, it didn't take that long. So maybe I'll give it another try. It's by Norbert Abel and Cheeky Parrot Games. I get to play Flick Fleet again. I played Flick Fleet uh, about a year or so ago. And Flick Fleet has these lovely laser-cut acrylic pieces, and they represent space capital ships. And you flick them around, and you manage their systems, and you fire their weapons by flicking a die from on top of the ship. And if they strike something and the roll is good, then it, it hits. 
And I really, really, really like Flick Fleet. I was already predisposed to liking Flick Fleet, and I talked about it before. But one thing I'd like to really emphasize that's so clever, there are lots of lovely little flourishes to Flick Fleet. And the one that I, I just adore is a ship can only move where it has thrusters. So when you flick it, you have to flick it from where the thrusters are. And this seems like a nothing, but it actually matters a great deal. Because, for example, fighter wings are just these circles. And you can flick them from any edge. And so fighter wings are very maneuverable. If you need them to go in any direction, you can flick them in that direction. Bomber wings, on the other hand, are crushingly devastating in terms of their firepower, but they can only move from the rear. They're much more difficult to maneuver. And if they need to get close to a target that's behind them, it's going to take them a while and it's going to be difficult. And I definitely encountered this problem because I had a cruiser that needed to go and attack a carrier, but the problem was I was facing the wrong direction. And so I kept trying to do these maneuvers where I was spinning around and trying to get to the right facing. Did not end well for me. I ended up shooting the cruiser off into the vastness of of, of the void, which uh, <clears throat> is a bit of an embarrassing loss. But anyway, Flick Fleet is a marvelous game. Can't wait to show it to you, Walker. Did you check out... There's a Kickstarter just recently for it, was there not? Yes, there was a Kickstarter for their... This is their third Kickstarter. They kickstarted the base game, they kickstarted the expansion, and then they kickstarted a collection of just new ships that you could buy a la carte. And we have access to the first expansion, and uh, that is already a tremendous fleet variety. And I, I, as I say, I can't wait to show it to you. In my last little board game arena game, like if you suddenly get up in the middle of a game and, and scream in frustration, you know, in jest or, you know, that means it's a good game. And I've talked about really? it. Really? I've, I've just mean like because you've pushed, you've pushed your luck too hard and, and you can't believe how greedy you got. To me, it's a sign that I need to start playing games with a better class of people. But then I remember that I'm stuck because I have a podcast with one of them. <laughs> Well, this is when no other people can see you. Just, just in my own, in my own abode. Oh, okay. And I'm playing Can't Stop, and <laughs> and I'm zooming up the track. And it's like, well, I'm only one away. I might as well just take, even though I've like advanced like up, you know, four tracks so far. If I just, I can lock out this one number, I'll just roll just just one more time, and then you know. <laughs> throw my arms up and disgust and, and walk away screaming. Anyway, if a game possess you to do such a thing you know they've they've come on to something and and i've known lots of people who love can't stop sid saxton griffin games has the 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 edition that's out now check it out it is a fantastic press your luck game can't stop finally for me i got to play alone a number of people on our guild recommended that we try alone after we uh i guess the polite term is did not thoroughly enjoy nemesis but then again, a number of people politely informed us that we were wrong not to thoroughly enjoy Nemesis. So I get to try Alone. Alone is a very divisive game. Thematically, it is essentially very similar to Nemesis, except that it is a lone human who wakes up on in some sort of facility about which they have no knowledge. So unlike the, some of the thematic disconnect that we had with Nemesis, whereby you wake up on your ship but you don't remember where any of the rooms are, something, something, hibernation sickness, here you literally wake up in a completely unknown installation, which is a mild thematic difference, but really, really helps sell the setting and you end up having a situation where the human only sees a few tiles at a time they're building relatively traditional dungeon crawl-ish type tiles to represent the map and their miniatures for monsters and various things meanwhile the evil player or players have the full map open to them behind a screen and they know what everything is going on now granted it's smaller so there's room and all that they do is they inform the human player when they hear noise coming from the north and that could mean something's moving. That could mean something's spawning. Maybe it's actually from the north, and maybe it's only because of the north, because it would be coming from the south, but the noise can't get there because it's through a closed door. Anyhow, a number of little bit touches like that. I played two-player, 
whereby there's one human and one evil player. And if you play multiplayer, then the evil role is split up amongst multiple people, but it's that classic element of what Brian Bankler calls fixed fun. There's only going to be a certain number of reactions played by the evil player, and if you're going to play with more than two players, that role is just split up amongst multiple people. I would be willing to try it, but I am not optimistic about that element of it. But as a two-player game, I thought Alone was thoroughly engaging, because it manages to capture a certain sense of paranoia, in that you literally don't know where you're stumbling around, and you're constantly under pressure. You could, if you wanted to, if you had all the actions in the world, you could very carefully plot out your moves, and map out the entire facility, and make sure that you never stumbled around in the dark, and turned on all the lights every time, but you just can't do that. Sometimes you have a vague sense of where you need to go, and that the time pressure is onto you. The time pressure could just be from the round structure, or the time pressure could be because you know that you left behind a giant face-eating worm a couple rooms behind, and you need to book it in the other direction. And so you end up stumbling into terrible calamity all the time. And that part was great. Thematically, it really, really sold the experience I played as the human. Our friend Huey, who loves playing as bad guys, played as the bad guy. I'm keen to see what it's like playing as the bad guy, because on top of this element of uh, paranoia, there's also this vague, thin veneer of dungeon crawliness, but all the good bits of dungeon crawling. Like, you get experience points when you kill certain type of monsters, and after you kill the second monster of a given type, you get a, a new Benny, and sometimes that is a good idea. So sometimes you, you seek out combat, and sometimes you don't. There's equipment cards and a very simple upgrading system that's nonetheless very satisfying, so it's got vague touches of things. And there are these mission cards that you need to satisfy, and some of the missions seem pretty cool. Like, for example, the mission card that I satisfied allowed me to power up a giant stompy mech. And so for the rest of the game, I was in a giant stompy mech, which I initially thought was a great idea, and I felt invincible until I realized, oh, it's really slow. I'm in trouble. <laughs> so is it constant missions, or do you just get one for the game, and then you, and once you've done that, you... There are three kinds of missions, and at the top of the game, you get two possible intro missions and one endgame mission. And you can only start the endgame mission after you've completed either of the two intro missions. And what's cool is one of the two intro missions introduces a penalty that goes away when you satisfy it. The other intro mission gives you a Benny when you satisfy it. So, for example, in my case, uh, the gravity system was down and I could go fix it. And that meant that, my, the, that attacks of opportunity against me were really nasty. Or I could go repair this mech, in which case I'm in a mech. Obviously, I chose to go for yeah, that. I, was say. <laughs> I, I thought about it for maybe less than half of a millisecond. And I don't know how much actual variety that introduces into gameplay. I did a quick look through the missions. They all seem more or less kind of the same. It's like, go to a place, discard three charges, get a Benny. And if there are versions of that where the Benny is anything short of a giant stomping mech, that seems like a bit of a disappointment. So I've, I have some concerns about replay value. I don't know how satisfying it would be playing as the alien. And I have, I'm very, very suspicious of what it's going to feel like playing three or four players. But I really enjoyed it. People have disparagingly compared Alone to Mastermind. They say it's basically Mastermind mashed with a dungeon crawler. And I can kind of see where they're coming from, because one of the elements of the game is, as a human player, you can ask questions about how many moves away you are from a certain thing. Like, for example, how many moves am I away from this room where the mission objective is satisfied? And the evil player tells you five. And then you move around a little bit, and you ask again, and then you hear that it's three. And so you start narrowing down where you need to get to. But I, as somebody who hates logic puzzles and has never had any enthusiasm for mastermind or deduction elements like that, I actually thought that it was, again, just sort of a, a, a neat way to temper the paranoia and 
give you a little sense of where you were going without perfect information and seeing the map all out in front of you. So there's a lot going on. You, you, you Maybe it's the case that it's flexible enough that it can feel like a dungeon crawl to people who want a dungeon crawl. It can feel like a, par- a, a paranoid-inducing, vaguely survival horror type of thing who want that kind of thing. And maybe it feels like a deduction puzzle to people who want a deduction puzzle. If so, that's pretty impressive. As it is, it gave me a lot of interesting notes without too much rules complexity and a very satisfying experience. I don't know how much longevity it's going to have, but this was designed by Andrea Crespi and Lorenzo Silva. Lorenzo Silva is the one who also co-designed The King's Dilemma. So this is two very good designs so far that I've played by him. I'm looking forward to chasing down more of his output. Andrea Crespi was involved in a number of things, among them Potion Explosion, which I haven't played, but you have. And this is another solid offering by Horrible Guild. I'm very, very keen to see what they come up with next. They've got a weird deck builder that's themed around platforming games that I'm keen to try when it comes out later on this year. And more to follow, probably, on Alone. And those are the games we played this week and why it matters. (laughs) (laughs) We only have three segments in the show, Walker. (laughs) No need to get confused. I didn't get confused. Okay. Now, on to the news. So the Spiel des Jahres and the Kennerspiel des Jahres and the Kinderspiel des Jahres have been announced, the winners of those categories. The winner for the SDJ was Pictures, which we have not played. We didn't really care too much about what happened with the SDJ this year. But the Kennerspiel, I talked previously about the King's Dilemma. The three nominees for the Kennerspiel, which is supposed to be, well, there's a lot of disagreement about what it's supposed to be. But it's supposed to be for perhaps a slightly more hobbyist-oriented gamer than the than The, the gamer's game. Maybe. I, again, controversial, but... Slightly more hobbyist in nature. The three nominees were The Crew, Quest for Planet Nine, which we both enjoy. The King's Dilemma, which I thought was the best game of last year and Walker was wrong about. And Cartographer is a role-player t- uh, uh, tale, which I thought was a pretty uninspired roll and write, which is to say it was a roll and write. And I was very nervous that Cartographers was going to get the nod. I was very hopeful that the King's Dilemma would get the nod, but instead it went to the crew, which I'm happy about. So in other words, the Kennerspiel des Jahres is very much the same as my feelings as the swag game of the year last year, which is to say it didn't go to the game I wanted it to, but I'm happy with what it went to. Mark, we both love It's a Wonderful World, and I loved Outlive. It's They're both out, put out by The Game Box. They don't go by that, really. It's the English translation. What is Correct. So I backed a game, another new game from them that's on Kickstarter right now, called Damio, Rebirth of an Empire. And it looks like it's almost all ready to go. You know, it's the, it seems like it's all been developed out and the rule book's already available and they already have play videos out. So it looks as though it's, you know, ready for production, which is, I like that type of Kickstarter, as opposed to, I have this idea... Help me, you know. I have, some, I have a couple 3D renders. Yeah, I'll, I'll finish it up as we go. Don't worry. Yeah. So check it out. Damio Rebirth of an Empire. Tons of plastic. Nice big box. And it seemed very reasonable at the time. And from the very brief video that I did watch, it does seem like it's going to be very interesting gameplay. I don't trust videos. Only podcasts. So the Steven Universe Beach of Palooza game is on Kickstarter, and it might not fund. If it doesn't fund, I'll be very sad. Well, I, I kick track what we use for our little Patreon show. They have a little button that says project and the project says that the, it will fund unless it's changed so since the, the last time I looked at it. The, 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 uh, the projection on kick track is nothing more than extrapolating from what has happened historically. The projection is usually very, very off. I do not have faith in that. All that I can tell you is that Steven I, Universe is amazing. I think you're panicking. I, I'm a little nervous, honestly. I, look. I, I will say that the outlook, the sunny optimism 
and Christ-like Redeemer features of Steven Universe are not aspects that I see in myself. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more like Lapis Lazuli, but the, tra- the trauma to justify it, which is a reference that people will get if they know the show. And if you don't know the show, you should watch the show. It takes about a few dozen episodes to get going, but oh my gosh, it was the best show on the air when it was airing, and it is marvelous, and it's also a very, very good Christ allegory, uh, but more Gnostic than traditional Christianity. Anyway. The only Steven Universe board game that exists is a Steven Universe Monopoly, and that is a blight on the universe and a tragedy to humankind. And Steven Universe Beach of Palooza card game was designed, uh, co-designed by Erica Bujoris, who's my favorite game designer, even though I've never played anything she's, she designed, because she also designed the Scott Pilgrim Miniatures game, which is supposed to come out maybe sometime ever. And I want the Steven Universe Beach of Palooza card game to fund. And what is wrong with you people? I ask nothing from you. Mark, I ask very, Mark, very little from you. Calm down. It'll be okay. I'm not sure that it will. Like I say, I, I don't have the same faith and strength of character that Steven Universe does. I'll pledge for it as well. How's that? How could you not want to play a card game about an incident where Steven encounters multiple time variants of himself, then realizes that he cannot play well with other versions of himself, and then watches dozens of versions of himself die systematically? This is a kid show, I would remind you. This is this happens a few episodes after the the body horror episode. Oh, it's based on an actual episode. Yes. So you can get visual reference. Sweet. Yes. It is, it, is, it is based on a specific episode, but you don't need to be familiar with that specific episode in order to get in order to get the, the central thrust of the idea. He learned to stay true to himself by watching himself die. That is that is the line that he sings near the end of the episode. It's, it's, well, that's that's character building right there, Mark. It actually is. It's a, it's a very seminal moment in his life. So speaking about videos, there's a game coming out by Stonemaier Games called Pendulum. There wasn't a lot of information on it, but I know you don't like gameplay videos, but there is a gameplay video up. It seems vaguely interesting. It has sand timers. So there's like a real-time element to it. Action selection. And you're locked out of that those selections until the timer's... Sorry. <laughs> you seem to have lost steam, Walker. Oof. Well, guess that what how does the saying go? The proof will be in the pudding. Yes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Yes. We we'll give it a give it a whirl. Oh yeah, we'll try it. We'll try wing yeah. sp- wingspan with sand timers. It doesn't I mean uh... <laughs> Okay. So the Spielworks version of Demacher, the rework slash redesign of the venerable Karlheinz Schmiel game about German politics, was supposed to be a Kickstarter exclusive and never really hit the mass market. And I just want to comment that for those that are curious, it is now available on the Board Game Geek store. I'm not endorsing the Board Game Geek store. I'm just saying it's a place where you can get it if you're so inclined. I did a, an in-depth look at the changes between the original versions there have arguably already been three editions of Demacher, with this what is arguably the fourth edition of Demacher in an episode of Sorry Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, which is our Patreon-exclusive episodes. So if you're curious, you can go listen to that. But it is available at retail, which is kind of nice, because I find it a little bit disappointing when there are Kickstarter games, especially of games like Demacher that should be in print, I think, that are very seminal to the development of our hobby, in the history of, of our hobby, that are just these flashes in the pan and then disappear forever. I, I find that a little bit sad. It, it's, it's an unfortunate consequence of our more periodical style of distribution and consumption in the board game hobby. That is the news and why it does not matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is Versailles 1919 by GMT Games with a fabulous box cover. 
I was waiting for that. <laughs> so this is a review copy we got from GMT. This is part of their so-called Great Statement series, three games that have all been designed by uh, designed or co-designed by Mark Herman, namely Churchill, Pericles, and now Versailles 1919. Jeff Engelstein co-designed it. There is no mechanical overlap to speak of between the three different games, so no need to go on about that. Mark Herman is a venerable wargame designer. He has been in the uh, hobby for a long time, and the list of his... Uh, seminal designs is as long as my arm. Jeff Engelstein has also been heavily involved in war games in his past, but has been primarily a Euro, Euro designer going forward. For example, he's been involved in, well, not that I'd call it a Euro game. He designed Space Cadets and Space Cadets Dice Duel along with various members of his family. Uh, he's also more recently designed uh, crunchier things like the Expanse board game, which is kind of sort of a Euroish version of Twilight Struggle. He's designed a lot of really interesting things coming from a war game background, similar to another seminal designer, Cole Worley, who very much comes from a war game background, or someone like Martin Wallace, who comes from a war game background. So this is a collaboration that in many ways made a lot of sense, given their comparative histories. They, they actually, in point of fact, were both simultaneously kind of sort of designing a game about the negotiations of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, and then when they met, they decided to collaborate fully and, and, and publish it together. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Versailles 1919? Well, I'm going to say, maybe you'll inevitably disagree, but it's sort of like a floating area of majority game. The Treaty of Versailles was this get-together of all the power, the, mostly... A shindig. It was a chill session. Mostly of all the the winners of World War One, And they were... And for six months... They hashed out this treaty with 32 other states. Again, not other states. I guess there was four of them. So it would have been 28 other states where Germany, I guess what you might call the loser of of the war, who was not allowed to speak at these talks. They could only submit anything they wanted to say in writing. So they're not really, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're not represented in the game. They're just not, they're not a player in the game. They're, you, you they're very to, much a subject of the game, not subject, an active agent that's of the correct. game. You get to play either the United States, France, England, or Italy, and then you try to manipulate everything else in the game. Yeah, Japan's role is also somewhat similar to Germany, and this is represented in the, the uh, negotiations. Originally, it was the big five. It was the big four plus Japan. But eventually, Japan got sidelined in part because of side negotiations that people were doing with China. Japan got some of the things it wanted. It, it, its, its occupation of Korea got ratified, but they weren't able to get other Anyway, eventually, the big four sequestered themselves away. And then Vittorio Orlando got unseated domestically in Italy. So he got sidelined. So, so the moment of time that the game sort of reifies is when it was the big four. After the Japanese got sidelined, but before the Italians did. And one of the things that I want to emphasize right off the bat in terms of the the historical theming is that – I've mentioned this before. To me, Versailles 1919 feels like a jerkface simulator. It's one of those games that puts you in a situation where you are encouraged to start doing terrible things because this is a story of – and. Call me cynical if you want, where four white guys sequestered in a room and carved up the entire world. And you're going to find yourself, while playing this game, saying things like, who cares about Belarus? And like just dismissing vast swaths of the game because you're horse trading Korea and all its inhabitants. But in a lot of the, but in a lot of the cases, it's hindsight, right? Where, sure. Where some of these deals were done in good intentions, right? Uh, okay, maybe. Some, some, maybe. some. All that I'm saying is, is that as a contemporary player engaged in these kinds of horse trades, 
especially given you know how that it ends out, it makes me feel horrible about myself in a somewhat satisfying way. And that's what that that's the kind of game that I'm talking about. I would compare it a little bit to Ladies and Gentlemen. Ladies and Gentlemen was a game where you were encouraged to live up these incredibly over-the-top sexist caricatures of consumerist wives and henpecked husbands who did nothing but earn money. It was a game that I thoroughly enjoyed as a social experiment and made me feel terrible about myself and my friends, so I never played a game. Or Meltwater, which is a game that makes you feel bad about all the things you're doing in a very, very satisfying artistic way. Not to the same extent, though. Versailles 1919 is not quite to the same extent. It's not the sort of grueling psychological experience, but it still has those overtures where, uh, where you're like, look, 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 I'll give you Czechoslovakia in exchange for... <laughs> and the moment you start with sentences like that, you're doing terrible things. So just a light a light thing on how, how this game works. All these issues are going to come up. Real issues that happen during the treaty. And there's a, a deck of about 55 of them. And as they come up, you're going to be placing your influence on them. And you have a limited supply of this influence. So everyone's throwing influence on this. And these are going to make some people unhappy and other people happy and cause revolts on the sideboard and cause all this stuff to happen. And then they're going to be like finally brought down to be voted on. And then someone's going to like finish it. And whoever has the majority of their influence on it gets to win it and gets to decide exactly how that issue gets resolved. At its core, as you say, it is a super simple area majority game where whoever has the most cubes on a card pockets the card and gets some points. And there are some various consequences. And the various, I don't mean to minimize the various consequences because those I think are the most mechanically interesting parts of the game. But at its core, it's relatively straightforward, which I'd like to say as a note, uh, following up on some comments I made last week, I, I, I went and checked among some of my other GMT games, uh, the complexity scale out of nine, GMT gives a six out of nine to Versailles 1919, when in comparison, they give Commands and Colors Medieval and Commands and Colors Napoleonics five, they give Cataclysm a five, which is absurd. Cataclysm is a, a much more in-depth game than Versailles. Triumph and Tragedy is given a four. You played Triumph and Tragedy before. Would you say that Triumph and Tragedy is a four to Versailles no, six? No, maybe we missed some pages then. <laughs> exactly. Because like I said, I have this as, I have this exactly written as here as well. Dead simple rules. Yeah. On your turn, you have three, basically three options, right? You're either going to put out influence on these issues, whereas you can put them only on two issues. And at the end of the day, you have to be winning those two issues that you put on and they have to go on two and you have to be in the lead when you're done. Or you can complete one of the issues that are up for voting, regardless of whether or not you're winning or not. Or you can pull back your influence. Like we said, like I talked about earlier, where you sort of take that skip a turn where you recollect your influence and get ready for the, f the upcoming turns. Yeah, it's, it's, it's dead simple. The most in-depth part of the game, and this is where I, I suspect you and I will agree, it's a little bit mechanically involved, or, or rather more procedural than satisfying, is when an issue gets resolved, you resolve the issue, and that's the fun part, and you disperse the winnings, and you decide that okay, after all, the Rhineland will now be just given to France wholesale, and that makes the Germans very mad, and that unsettles Europe, and blah, blah, blah. But then you have to descend the new issue that's going to be debated, descend an event card of your choice, decide the new event that's going to come out, pull out a new event, blah, blah, blah. It's a series of six or seven steps that have to be done in a very particular order, and it can sometimes be a little bit procedural in terms of doing all these things. Yeah, because not only that, because then it most likely it'll lead to because I'm going to go into go into leaders a bit later, but these there's these leaders that will come down and their ability triggers and a lot of the times the event cards the event cards 
will be uh, trigger unrest, and then you'll go through this whole voting thing, and then near the end of the game, it just gets a little in tedium words. These leaders are constantly flowing down because you're you're cycling through these things a lot quicker for whatever reason near the end of the game, and it's like these constant unrest things coming up. It just seemed a little rough near the end because you were just talking about how these issues that come up all the time seem to or push the game in certain directions. Like it pushes uh, Japan and Italy to be unhappy and pushes the Middle East to be at unrest and, and it historically pushes issues in certain ways and uh, penalizes some of the players. And do you feel that that deck is balanced in that way? Like it, 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 it makes it balanced for all the players. Like I had no idea. I'm not saying that it wasn't unbalanced, but I'm just wondering through our planes, do you feel as though everyone's affected in the same way, either, either positively or negatively? Uh, no, and I don't think that's a problem. I think that's actually an asset. But it's an asset that the game sometimes doesn't project with sufficient clarity. And I think it would be helpful in future if I explained the game slightly differently. Here's what I mean. The deck of issues is only going to give out a small subset of its issues in any given game. And you're right. In normal circumstances, that would be a problem if, say, all the all the events that were unfavorable to France came out and none of the ones advantageous to France came out, that would be a problem. But here's the thing, because we haven't really touched on the negotiation aspect yet. And I commented last week that I wasn't entirely favorable after one playing to its level of negotiation. And now I'm, I'm much more proving of the level of negotiation because you mentioned that when you resolve an issue, you don't have to be winning it. The reason why you might resolve an issue that you're not going to win is because all of those other procedural elements that we talked about, deciding what new issue is going to be debated, deciding what new issue gets is going to be tabled, deciding what issue, what event card gets pulled down, all of those are determined by whoever player, whatever player whose turn it is. So I'm the, I'm the Italians and I'm not winning any issues. It might be my, in my interest, perhaps even for free, to resolve an issue I'm not winning just so I can control the agenda. And that element there, agenda control, is massive. Because the new issue that comes out to be tabled, there are two issues that you can resolve right now, and three that are basically in a queue of, of indeterminate order. Not only do you get to decide what issue of the queue comes up, but you have a number of options about what issue is going to come up to the table later. If you're the French and you know you're not going to win the Rhineland and Rhineland comes up off the deck, but it's your turn, you can bury that sucker and move along laughing. And then if somebody else then fishes it from the discard pile because they take the opportunity cost to do that, you can then, as the French, try to make sure that that issue never comes to the forefront and remains in the table deck section. So I agree with you. There's going to be an imbalance in what issues come out, but it is subject to player control. Yeah, I'm totally going to backtrack on what I said last week, too, about negotiations. I thought that I wish there was like some sort of hidden benefit but I really think that would give hard negotiators too much of an advantage. And I really, I appreciated the way they did it a lot more. And the fact that there's so much to the negotiations, right? Where it's keeping, where you can sort of get them not to put any of their influence on the card, or you can, you get to decide which, you know, you can ask them which cards to bring down. Like you just talked about, you can say, I'll give you this, you know, if you bring down these cards, you can ask for military help. We haven't even talked about the, there's a whole unrest part of the game. We've only briefly touched on. And the fact that there's only one type of currency, right? It's all about the influence. You can say, okay, well, I'll sacrifice this much, this much influence and they'll get that much influence back. So, and the fact that, you know, there's not all these different things you can keep going back and forth with. So I think I love the negotiations in this game. And this, despite the fact that, as you say, there's effectively one currency that you have to trade and tempo. That's it. You have influence and tempo. What you do on your turn and the rate at which influence cycles out. Because over the course of the game, you're going to have to take a turn to take influence back. 
Now, sometimes, and I saw you weaponize this very successfully, there was an instance in the last game we played where you were crushing a couple of issues, and but none of us had any ability to fight you seriously because we were so poor, we'd overspent on other things. And we kept, well, I kept waiting for you to resolve it, but you never had to. You were winning so handily, and we had exhausted all of our influence previously, you just got to let it sit there and you dominate the table. So whatever we wanted to get to the table couldn't go there because you refused to resolve the issue. It was marvelous, it was a great play, and it demonstrates how subtle some of these tempo considerations are. I hope it was deliberate. Yes, well, like you said, because it blocked other issues from coming down and it slowed the flow of the game down and I could wait for issues that I wanted to come up, you know, so I could, so then, like you said, then I can refresh and start bidding right. on the ones that I actually wanted. And it makes the game more subtle. Most of the time, if there is an issue on, uh, that can be resolved that you're winning, you probably want to resolve it. But the fact that sometimes you w- won't want to do that, I find marvelous. Yeah, that's another thing I have here is that, that all the cards sort of have something, right? Either you want something on the card or you don't want others to have it or you don't want something bad to happen to you that's on the card. Either it's going to make you unhappy or something like that. Unrest in a region in which you're seriously committed, uh, put uh, issues on the table that are not going to score you points and score points for the opponent. Absolutely. Halfway through the game, there's this introduction of victory conditions, right? As soon as this unrest thing happens. When an issue becomes unsettled. When an issue, yeah, when an issue becomes unsettled. Then there's these side cards that are going to say, these issues that you've won are now worth X number of victory points. And the cool thing that they did is they made some of them common throughout the cards. So it sort of like teams up all the players, but in different ways. Like two people will be Strange for fractional the, yeah, coalitions. Yeah. And it's not only these two players. I mean, it's all sort of like little piecemeal. Everyone is sort of intermingled. And so you can use these things to help negotiate certain issues, right? Right. Suddenly one player is indifferent to the state of Germany's economy after the war, but another player at the table cares very deeply. And so now you can start haggling over the way an issue gets resolved. And I was initially somewhat disappointed about the way the strategy card shook out thematically, because, you know, one of them might be isolationism. One of, one of them might be Woodrow's 14 points. True. And- what I, I just want to talk, before I forget, what I put in there is it, I thought it seemed like it, like uh, the state's internal affairs, like what's happening back home, right? I, I agree completely. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Because initially I looked at it and said, look, Woodrow Wilson would never be isolationist. Uh, you know, Lord George would never be in favor of, of national self-determination. These things are absurd. But then I thought, wait a minute, Vittorio Orlando got unseated over the course of the Versailles negotiations. Uh, Woodrow Wilson got effectively kneecapped in domestic politics very shortly after the end of the negotiations. We call the players by these historical figures, but they don't have to be them. Clemenceau could have been completely sidelined and replaced by a negotiator who was less antagonistic towards Germany. So yeah, it initially bothered me thematically, but then I thought about the domestic pressures and the various conflicting influences over over politics, and now it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, not only that, I think it gives uh, like uh, first-time players a goal, right? It's something to play towards because there's it's not that it's an overly complex game. It's just that it's slightly different than your your norm, and you're not quite some. You might not be sure what's happening, right? And these are, give you clear goals of what to shoot for. So now let's talk about the unrest. I think because every card corresponds to a category. Most of these categories are regional in nature. This, uh, you know, you decide what is what happens to Palestine, and that's a Middle East issue, and et cetera, et cetera. And at various times, their unrest increases. This usually happens. The unrest usually increases in proportion to the extent to which European powers are meddling with things they don't understand. 
there are two effective checks on the unrest. One of them is devoting military presence. It's like, oh, the people in the Balkans are really angry. Well, let's stick a French army there to make sure that they're not going to get too mad. And there's a variety of things you can do to leverage this. There are costs associated with it. It ties up your military. It makes your people unhappy. And it's not trivial, but it gives you some influence and some skin in the game about how the issue is going to resolve. The other big check, and this is, I think, a counter to your complaint that there are these repeated unrest checks, because eventually they will revolt. Someone will. And when they revolt, their unrest resets. And so they don't get angry again for another little while. So if you're willing to, let me be very specific about this. If you're willing to organize the revolt such that it doesn't harm you, that it harms somebody else, that is not only a great way to make sure that you don't suffer the pain, it's also a great way to settle a region down at no cost to yourself. Yeah, but but also there's also what's that marker that moves up every time they go on unrest, right? Which makes them unrest more often. That is true. Eventually, what are, what are some regions. Do you remember what, they call, what it's called? The powder kegs. The powder kegs. That's right. So every time an unrest happens, the powder keg goes up. So when it does reset, it doesn't go all the way back to zero. It goes, you know, it's so true. It, it, it slowly bumps up, so it happens more often. I'm more and more impressed, though, with the subtlety of the levers that you can control. Now, granted, it's buried in tiebreaker conditions, and I'm never a big fan of very salient strategy points being buried in tiebreaker conditions. But when unrest happens and, and an issue gets unsettled in, say, the Pacific, whoever has the most Pacific issues, whoever's the most committed to the Pacific, they unsettle one of their issues. But if there's a tie, then it's broken largely by whoever has the most military commitment in the Pacific, which makes perfect sense thematically and is a great way to make sure that the unrest happens not at your expense, which is one of the reasons why I think, largely speaking, in early games, we were too conservative. It's like, oh, I have a Pacific issue. I don't want there to be uh, unrest. Then you figure, wait a minute, but if the unrest happens, I've got my army stationed in Tokyo. Okay, well, I can make sure that, that Louis's issue gets unsettled, not me. I think I'm not sure. I think maybe the only reason I'm not I shouldn't say I don't like it. I'm just wondering in some games like this you can ignore that part of the game. Yes. In this one you cannot. Absolutely right. Right? Because like you just said, it's like I have Pacific. Guess what? You just lost six victory points because, you know, you've neglected the unrest scale and you didn't put armies in the Pacific. Well, but that's just it. It all comes down to where your armies are and what they're doing. Because we we haven't gone into detail about how it happens mechanically, but you don't lose the issue automatically. It comes up for bid. Uh, a very straightforward bid that mostly centers around military influence. So if you have an army in the Pacific and your other armies are available, you don't have to worry about anything happening in the Pacific. You can get that issue back at relatively little expense to yourself. The situation becomes problematic when you're A, over-invested in a region that is B, unstable, and C, you don't have the military assets to back it up. So there are lots of little levers that you can pull to make sure that when the unrest happens, you can deal with it. It's just if you're caught with your pants down, you might start bleeding points like crazy, which I will grant you can be very, very daunting, and it's one of those subtleties, especially in a simple game that will escape new players. But I think properly managed, it's just one of those areas where you can just really hedge your bets and be the, you know, invulnerable colonialist power that you've always wanted to be. So overall, I enjoyed the game. I just think it goes a little bit long. Because like I said, there was a deck of about 55 uh, issue issues that you have to deal with. And about uh, 20 cards from the bottom, we're putting the end game card in. And a lot of those are going to get burned through the course of selecting what issues come to table. But then again, you can also start fishing from the discard pile. So yeah, that's, it depends. Yeah. So it all depends on how keen people are to, you know, make the game go longer. Because you can, like you said, you can start fishing out of the discard pile and, and, and making the game go that much longer. I feel as though it would just benefit from being slightly shorter. But that's just, I think, personal taste. Sure. It's a solid two hours. 
uh, probably more in your early plays, especially if you don't have, especially if players haven't internalized all the procedural elements that happen when you settle an issue. This descends here. Now this descends here. Now I pull from here. Now I pull from here. I'm done. If it's uh, now what happens again every time, then yes, that's really going to lord onto the playing time. But I will say this, and I, I, re- I yes, I realize it's a matter of taste how, how long you'd be willing to play. If anything, I'm disappointed that the game isn't longer because I want more of the issues to come up because the, the historical texture is just so delightful to me. And I'd rather not resolve a game without settling, for example, German rearmament, uh, you know, how much foreign trade they're permitted, the state of the German fleet, the Ruhr Valley, and all these other things. Like, what are we going to do about Prince Faisal? What happened to Chime Wiseman? Like, these are all the things that I want to have resolved. That's true. It did, did take six months to uh, to finally get this finished. It's true. And then they got to draw a whole bunch of borders in a whole bunch of places they ne- never seen before and never went to over the course of their lives. But if you... Look, if you have any enthusiasm for the historical ramifications of the Balfour Declaration or the Sykes-Picot Agreement or what happened to the Adriatic aspirations of the Italians, like all of these, all of these things, yes, they're just little touch points and they, they, they've only got a paragraph of elaboration in the playbook, but I absolutely adore this period of history. I find it so fascinating. And I will say this though, even though it's two hours, it is not two hours of constant haggling because two hours of constant haggling that you might have in a game like Sidereal Confluence or three hours of constant negotiation in a game like New Angeles or something like that, even for someone who adores negotiation like me, that's awfully draining and it's a very, very narrow audience. A lot of people just get tired. It's, it's tired to be constantly engaged in a game. Downtime can sometimes be salutary. It's not two hours of constant negotiation. It is a very, very easy two hours. It does feel like it starts to drag a little bit if you're not properly managing some of those back-end levers that I talk about. But those are some of the subtleties that might escape you in a first play. Yeah, it's definitely a historical period that I love. Like I said, I've already watched several hours of videos, you know, talking about what had happened because, you know, I I didn't, I knew a little bit, but not quite as much as I wanted. And I wanted to, you know, understand, you know, why certain things are happening in the game. And it really just brings it to life that much more. Yeah, I've read a little bit of Margaret McMillan's Paris 1919. I've been watching and reading more about the period as well. I've been listening to a great series of essentially documentaries uh, that are po- in podcast form called Martyr Made, which is largely about the establishment of Israel. And it talks a lot about the various commitments that the great powers made in the lead up to World War One and during World War One that led to a lot of the tragedies in the 1920s. Anyhow. So yeah, I have a great deal of enthusiasm for the period. I don't know how engaging you would find it if you had zero interest in the period. I, I, I sincerely don't. Like, it is possible that it, that if you just regard it as I am now engaged in bidding for five cubes on this issue, that'll give me six points. If that is all that's involved for you, that might be good enough. It might not be. I'm not in a position to speculate. But for me, I'm a huge fan of XI 1919. Anybody that is willing to deal with the playtime and the, the, the subject matter, I enthusiastically recommend it. And I will also say, just as a minor note, despite the fact that last week and this week we alluded to it, we've been, we've been slamming the cover. Uh, the game when set up is actually quite nice looking, I think. Yes, the inside of the box does not reflect the cover whatsoever. It's got this lovely little, again, kind of highlighting the extent to which you're so far removed from the actual consequences of your decisions. It, it, it looks like this big conference table, and the current player marker is this lovely historical ad for a fountain pen. Yeah, the, well, that, that being said, it sort of reflects on what we talked about, where it really bogs the game down. When you have to have a, a game piece that, yes. that marks whose turn it is, because we're about to go through a whole bunch of of rigmarole, then you know, you know, it might be a little too much. But anyway, yes, like you said, it's this marker to remind you whose turn it is. And like you said, fantastic little ad on the back. 
So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. Spread the word, let them know. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.